Welcome, everyone. Hi, I'm Henry DeVries, the CEO of Indie Books International, and I'm your host today on the Marketing with a Book podcast. Thanks for joining us today. So on the podcast, we look at different aspects of being an author who markets with a book. I'm the author of Marketing with a Book. This is not marketing a book, it's marketing with a book. How, how do independent consultants attract high paying clients by marketing with a book and a speech? That's what we examine on this call. So glad you're at the podcast today and people have called in and we're glad that they're here. We like to start off with an author roll call and I'm gonna start it off with Chris Hodges and then go to uh, Mark and then Steve. Hello, everybody. My name, my name is Christopher Hodges. I am the author of Noble Automation Now, which I was about to hang, hold up, and then I realized it's right over the top of my shoulder, which has been published by Indie Publishing in January. What an exciting journey. Anyway, I'm here in Denver, Colorado. Thanks, Chris. And Mark, and then Steve. Thank you, Henry. My name is Mark LeBlanc. I'm out of Minneapolis, Minnesota and uh, currently serve as the chairman of Indie Books uh, International. And working now, uh, my current book project is titled Bringing in the Business for Independent and Practice Professionals who want to do a better job, obviously, of building a case, uh, making a sale without sounding like a salesperson. Very excited. Uh, about this next book uh, to be released. Thanks, Mark. And Steve, welcome. Tell us uh, where you're from and what you're working on. So I'm from Hendersonville, North Carolina. And um, the working title of my book is The Leader's Quest for Optimal Team Performance. And your book is about neurosciences and leadership is that correct yeah yeah the uh the the subheading is um the power of neuropsychology to supercharge your leadership hmm. nice well we're looking forward to that book and i'm henry devries i'm the co-author of rainmaking sorry rainmaker confidential and this is a research study that Mark LeBlanc and Scott Love and I uh, did during the pandemic, how top professionals were making it rain, what they were investing their time, talent and treasure in during the tough times and what was working, what was the go-to strategy. And now we're sharing this information in speeches and webinars and through other means. So. Welcome. Today, our uh, special guest is David Kalinowski, one of our authors. If we could pin David and I, and we'll do the, the interview. So, David, how are you today? Welcome. I am fantastic. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. So good to, for you to be here. So you're going to talk to us about how to speak at trade shows to gain exposure. So what has been your success with doing that? No, I found that in a very um, younger age that being able to be present in front of an audience of individuals that 
may have a need for your services is a great way to build credibility, thought leadership, and overall improvement of your image. And so uh, if I may, I'd like to give you just a quick backstory that kind of even led me to why speaking at trade shows in particular is a marketing vehicle that I think a lot of speakers or authors don't always tap into and ought to. Uh, so back in August of 95, I had my first son and my business partner and I broke away from a small boutique consulting firm that we worked at for about five years together. And shortly after my son was born, we found ourselves starting a business called Proactive Worldwide, a competitive intelligence research and consulting firm. And I discovered fairly quickly that I don't know anything about running a business, let alone growing a business, but I did know that we had to build some credibility fairly quickly. And of course, uh, those first three years, like most entrepreneurs, were brutal, right? You have 10, 12-hour days, six days a week, and you'll get the work in, get it done, just the two of us. And finally, in 1998, we got our first employee and started to grow the business. And I remember going to get our first office space, and that's when the landlord or the real estate agent kind of said, hey, uh, you need to sign this other document, not just the lease. And I was like, what's this? And I said, well, it's, it's a promissory note. I said, promissory note? What do we need that for? We're, we got the business. And they kind of laughed for about five minutes. And then they finally said, yeah, well, you still need to personally guarantee the rent. I said, wow, okay, that's making this very real now having this business thing where I will put all my assets, which weren't very much at the time, I was 27 years old when we started the business. So I'll do the math for you, I'm 54 now. And, but I knew that uh, we had to do something that's going to be fast and creative to be able to, to you know, put our place in the market. And so early on is when I realized, yes, there's lots of different ways we could get ROI in our business. And one of the key ways I discovered was to say, hey, we should speak at trade shows because that will allow us to get in front of the audience that's in our industry, uh, target customers, and a way to raise our, our image and reputation. Because as uh, Mark just talked about in describing his book, I'm not a huge hard sell kind of person. I'm more of a soft sell kind of person here. So what a, what a great way to be able to do that without overtly putting yourself out there. So I submitted a speaker proposal, and I encourage everybody out there to find the events that you would have a great interest in, that would have an audience that would appeal to the things you do and offer, and was going to speak at our main industry trade show, which at the time it was called Society of Competitive Intelligence Professionals. Now it's Strategic and Competitive Intelligence Professionals. They accepted the proposal and I was going to talk about managing stakeholder expectations. So I was really excited, a little nervous, but I knew that you know I better not screw up because this is the one shot you kind of get to, to start building an image for yourself and your company. And I went to the event, of course, practiced a whole bunch of times for the presentation. And then I started watching the people fill up the room, right? And more and more people. Next thing I know, there were over 200 people in this particular breakout session. It was the largest session attended at that particular event, I later learned. And so, you know, of course, I was uh, drinking a little extra water, you know, taking my deep breaths and got started. And once I got started, I was very comfortable. I knew the material. I had confidence. I spoke with conviction, authority. And uh, the great thing was, it ended up becoming one of the, the highest rated sessions of the event. 
Got a lot of booth traffic that I wouldn't have otherwise got. People stopping by to say hi. They enjoyed the event. They learned a lot, asking me questions. And it was a way to be able to also attend the show for nothing other than some travel costs. Because as a speaker at these events, as you may know, you often get a significant discount or no fee at all for the registration. So now I got to attend the rest of the event uh, just because I was speaking there. So uh, I would definitely encourage anybody that is looking to enhance their business or promote their book, even if you're not talking about the book itself, to be able to make part of your marketing strategy, speaking at trade shows, to be able to enhance your own visibility and, of course, that of your organization. So when you're choosing a trade show to speak at, what are the criteria that you use? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, there's probably five or six things I think about. One is, am I interested in the theme or the topic that's at the event? Usually each show has some kind of a theme. Is it in an industry that I am familiar with? Uh, most importantly, is the audience one where my messages and what I have to offer would resonate with that, that ultimately they could be a buyer, right? That I can follow up and I can have an opportunity at least to understand their needs and express how our solutions can help with those particular needs. Um, I think a couple of other things are, you know, when I think about what I have to say can be different than what other speakers are contributing, uh, I find that's really valuable when you know you have a unique message you can, you can look at the agenda topics and realize you're going to bring some new thinking or a new perspective you know, to that audience. And, and then finally, I would just think about, uh, you know, can I demonstrate my thought leadership with this group? Uh, can I really enhance uh, my image and that of the company by being there and being able to in turn, you know, share some new knowledge? David, you're very smooth. I'm thinking 27 <laughs> years ago, you weren't that smooth. So what tips do you have for somebody who's doing this and how could they improve? Yeah, definitely something you learn over time on what to get better. So I, I you know, I still get nervous at times when I, when I present, even if I gave the same presentation a couple dozen times, it's a different audience. You don't know how they'll react. Uh, but a few things. One is you, know, you got to practice. You still have to prepare and refine your opening and your ending. You, know, you got to nail those. That's what people most walk away with the most here and, and really draw you in. Uh, I think also just getting a good night rest earlier in my career, I wasn't very good at that. You know, I, I, and even now still, we all still have our late nights, you know, but it's often because we still have a passion for what we do. Um, but I wasn't always rested uh, too, too much anxious energy. So I think getting, getting a good night's sleep is still very important to prepare. And I think uh, just being confident in what you have to present and knowing that you understand the material is good, if not better than anyone else in the world that you're going to share without being you know, arrogant about it. Uh, you, know, you still want to be humble, but yet still be you know, very confident in what you're ultimately delivering. And, and the final thing, you know, Henry, might be when you go to these trade shows, you get a badge, right? You all been to trade shows and you get the speaker badge, that little ribbon that's on there. So what's helped me a lot and what I would suggest for others is to go up and introduce yourself to people, let them know what day of the event and what time you're speaking, what room you're going to be in and be able to invite them 
to come see your session. Sometimes you're up against other sessions at that time, other speakers. So you don't want to be speaking to five people. So the more people you get in there, the better. Uh, but by doing that, I always felt less nervous then because I felt like I already met most of the people in that room and they weren't strangers to me. Well, let's talk about results. Let's talk outcomes. Have you any stories about where you've spoken at a trade show and this directly produced business for the firm? Absolutely. I would say that at almost every event, uh, we walk away with at least you know fifty to hundred thousand dollars worth of work. Maybe not immediately at that event, but with the follow-up activities that come from those leads. The best example I could share is a few years ago, I spoke at the Association of Strategic Planning up in Canada, and I did a session on business wargaming. So role-playing the competition and thinking about pressure testing your strategies and moves and counter moves. And after that session was done, it was about a 45, 50 minute workshop. One of the ladies that was in that who happened to be the senior vice president of strategy for a very prominent organization, multi-billion dollar company came up and said, hey, we need to be doing this. I said, awesome. Well, let's talk after the event here. And so, of course, that then led to a six-digit engagement, and that went incredibly well, well, got us more visibility, and then we were able to cross-sell other things that we do when we identify other problems that existed. So we were able to do other primary research, help with some training, introduce some technology solutions, and do some other competitive intelligence consulting. So all in all, in a couple of years, got maybe about $175,000 of revenue from this one account, from this one conference, from one presentation. So there's definitely uh, big returns that you could get for a relatively nominal investment of some travel costs uh, to be present. And of course, to be able to uh, you know, uh, expand to others that were at that event as well. David, we have a saying at Indie Books International, a book is the number one marketing tool for a consultant. Speaking is the number one marketing strategy. So I would imagine if you did a genealogy of many of your clients and revenues, a lot of that, think of it like the tree, goes back down to a speaking engagement. Is that a fair statement? I think it's a very fair statement. There's no doubt about it. And sometimes it might not be immediate, it might be a year later or three years later for that matter, as long as you keep the follow-up, you use tools like LinkedIn to stay connected to individuals. But uh, there have been many times where I'll have individuals that reach out and say, you know, I saw you speak in Chicago a few years ago. Fantastic. So I will attribute some connection to winning that business back to that because there was something in that presentation that resonated with them that caused them to remember. There you go. Do you, do you remember the old joke about the little boy who didn't speak till he was five and he said, the toast is burnt? And, and they said, well, you can speak. He said, yeah, up to now everything's been good. So <laughs> people didn't really bring it up. Um, there was a company I studied, a big New York law firm that somebody showed up and just said, okay, we're ready to get to business and all this. And, and he's just like acting like a client and all the partners are going like, who is this? Who is this person? And, uh, and it turned out, he said, oh, I heard you speak 10 years ago after the speech. I told you whenever we would have this legal problem, you are our law firm. 
there hasn't been a problem for 10 years, but now we have it. So yeah. we're here. So the latency effect, I mean, uh, you mentioned it. So sometimes there can be a long tail on clients coming. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, there, there certainly can be. If they don't have a need, they don't have a need, right? Uh, but the, the awesome thing is not only can you get other work from clients, but you have others that are in that audience that can recommend you to speak at other events or even at their organizations. I've been invited to speak at organizations uh, based on uh, various topics that, you know, I help often companies to lead ways to build their intelligence capabilities to gain and maintain a competitive advantage. So that actually led to us becoming a strong partner with a couple of different associations where we can train individuals in how to gather, categorize, index, analyze, disseminate in intelligence throughout their organizations to inform multi-million, sometimes multi-billion dollar investment decisions. So sometimes it's not always a direct customer, but other professional relationships that you develop that then give you access to other groups that, but for your speaking engagement, you would have never been introduced to them. So it, it's been a really great way for, for us. And, and again, I encourage others to think about if you're not scheduled to speak at a trade show this year to try to find one to get at. Um, a lot of times they already book those up in advance of the big show. So you, sometimes you have to look now for next year's trade shows that you want to go to, but, but submit the, the proposals, uh, get several of them out there because you may not get accepted to all of them, uh, yeah. but it's really a, a fantastic way to interact. Uh, I can't wait till we get back in, in person more with some folks, which is starting to happen this year. My suggestion is to put together a list month by month on when the shows are, and this is a long game. This is not a short game. This is 11 months, 10 months out. You need to be looking at getting on the speaking roster. Now, some events, because we're just moving out of pandemic to live events are on again, and they didn't really know they were going to do a live event. So that's been compressed. But typically, think. 11, 10 months out, they're working on the event and deadlines are coming up to submit and the program committee will be looking at you. So you'll want to have tools like your book. You'll want to have a one page speaker PDF on what you speak on. We've had podcasts on that and we help people put those together. And then some of it is blocking and tackling to use the football analogy. It's reaching out filling out the forms. Uh, and if you don't get it this year, there's always next year, wait till next year. And if you have a top 10 list that you're going after, then it doesn't overwhelm the practice and you can do this. Now you've talked about a book, your book's coming out in April. Why don't you tell everybody what the book is and how it's gonna support your business? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So the, the new book is called The CI Driven CEO. It's a little leadership story about a big competitive intelligence idea. And the whole idea of the, the book is it's written as a story. So it's about a two and a half hour read. So designed for those to hop on a plane, give it a quick read and have all this new knowledge about competitive intelligence. You know, some who don't know anything about it, it 
you know, they hear those words and it conjures up espionage and corporate spying and midnight rendezvous and secret handshakes and decoder rings and all. When in reality, it's individuals who work really hard to gather secondary and primary information, analyze that through different frameworks, and then interpret the insights to really understand what it means to our business to gain an advantage and, you know, find the hidden opportunities and to understand the threats you're facing. So, most organizations have CEOs that grow up from within the ranks or they're injected from some other leadership position from another company. They tend to be a sales-minded or marketing-minded or finance or product-driven, and they run the company that way. If they're a sales-driven CEO, they're all about, you know, let's get more sales in there. Let's grow, let's grow, right? If you're a marketing-based, it's, well, we got to look at our image and get some sentiment and, and watch our branding reputation. If they're a product, it's like, let's get innovation. We need new products out there. Um, if they're coming from the finance ranks or always, finance ranks are they're cost conscious, right? Um, why not an intelligent, intelligence-driven CEO? The competitive intelligence group, of which 95% of Fortune 500 companies have a formal intelligence capability established, they know more typically about the external environment, the competitors, the customers, the suppliers, the regulators, the, the overall uh, economy, whatever the different factors or forces are that affect your business. Why can't they also be considered for the top spot and grow up through the ranks, given that they can really understand the, the dynamics in your marketplace? So that's what the book's about. It's about a little aspirational and inspirational message uh, that CEOs need to start having more of a competitive intelligence background and not view that as an expense or overhead. It truly is an asset to better understand how you leverage knowledge to be able to, to win. I'm gonna take us in a little different direction. I have a market research background. And I also, when I was a VP for a $5 billion financial services organization, I had that role where I was looking at the issues that were going to possibly affect us and come in. The point I have for the authors is there is so much information hiding in plain sight that if you just apply yourself, you can find out so much on your topic, on your industry. There's a joke we like to say that if you ever kill someone, the best place to hide the body is on the second page of a Google search because <laughs> people don't go very deep. Um, I went to the 70th page of a Google search once and found a $5,000 report we wanted that was made free and available, but we had to go that deep. So is there any tricks, tips, advice you have on how authors can go a little deeper on their research without, uh, what did you say, cloak and dagger or secret decoder yeah. rings or uh, bribing the person on the, and the custodial staff? Without a doubt. There, you know, aside from the main two search engines of Google and Bing, there's a wide variety of others out there, whether it's DuckDuckGo or, um, um, you know, triangulate, which is an interesting one out there to look at Twitter connections, but even listen notes. If you're looking to understand podcasts, listen notes is a great way to search for content out there by people who may have given podcasts. 
but you want to certainly look at uh, understanding the right questions that you ask into the queries and, and how you phrase those questions become really important. And as you said, um, you know, dig a little deeper than the first couple pages. I do say that at a certain point you want to, you know, cut it off if you can't find something. You otherwise you'd be the, the never-ending, you know, hunt for the answer. Uh, but also the primary research. Don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call someone who's another author or or the author of a of an article that you read or a syndicated report that you picked up or uh, an, a trade analyst or a, a newspaper reporter. People that can give you other perspectives on the topic. I find that a lot of people have access to the open source or, or published information. So there's no unique advantage to that. Uh, where you get the unique differentiator is having conversations with experts on the topic to get their 360 perspective. So you walk away with a holistic uh, insight on whatever topic it is you're looking at. Speaking of primary research, one of the discoveries we made when I was a market research consultant, and it was backed up by academic research, is you can gain more information by nine depth interviews than you can by conducting nine focus groups with 10 people in each one. So for a fraction of the cost, it's amazing if you just have a 20 to 30 minute interview with somebody, you ask good questions. What I learned as a reporter is the technique of asking the same question three times. So to give an example, and, and the point is most people can say, oh, well, I don't wanna talk about that twice. But the third time, I don't know, for some reason people will open up. <laughs> um, so I was writing a article for Computer Merchandising Magazine. I was paid the enormous sum of $300. And it didn't matter how long it took me to research and write, I was paid $300. And I turned one of my articles in and it was about computer laptop sales. And the editor says, you know, we need one more quote in here near the top from an industry leader, and then we'll accept the article and pay you. So, and we're on deadline. So I thought, okay, who's still open? Um, Texas, East Coast was already closed. Texas, who's in Texas? Um, the, uh, so I called a computer, I'll leave them nameless. I called a computer company in Texas and asked to speak to the director of marketing and I was put through and I said, how have laptop sales been? And he says, well, it's not really our policy to comment on sales. I said, oh, I understand. Just in general terms, you know, are they up? Are they down? Are they static? Uh, we do not like to comment on pending sales or sales trends. I said, look, I just need you to say something. <laughs> what are sales doing? And he says, okay, okay. Sales are down. They're not what we projected. Um, we're doing some plans to revitalize. And I'm like, oh, great. All this guy had to say was, we're having a great year and I'm done. I could go home. Now I had to write all this stuff down, rewrite the article, put this at the lead. And my editor says, gosh, how do you get this information? How do you get people to crack like that? And I said, it's just good reporting. 
It's just good reporting. Actually, yeah, well, the, the, the reality, that's a great story because uh, you'd make a great intelligence uh, expert because the reality is that people like to tell you what they know and they like to correct you when you're wrong. And there's a book by John Nolan called Confidential where he talks about 10 or 12 different elicitation techniques that are very similar to investigative journalists. So naivete, so you know, playing the role that you really don't understand the topic so that people are not threatened and they open up to you uh, using a bracketing technique. Hey, are your sales between 100 million and 200 million? Yeah, they are. Closer to 100 or closer to 200? Well, closer to 200. Now I know it's between 150 and 200. I'll go to somebody else and I might use an erroneous statement and say, yeah, I hear you're not doing it very well. You're only generating about 50 million. Well, I don't know who told you that. We're $172 million. So you get some confirmations and validation for some verification. And you're able to have dialogue without being so overt with a, you know, what do you make or how much are your sales? People don't tend to answer those questions. But you will get those that will tell you to get lost. And who are you? And why do you want this? And I'm not going to talk to you. And then you have others that are quite loquacious. And uh, all you have to do is give them an invitation to speak. And now you have to be careful about ethical and legal activities. You have to be careful about not uh, inducing one to breach confidentiality or using confidential information. But my approach has always been when people want to share something with me, it must not be confidential. Why? Because you shared it with me. <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so the burden is on you to know what's confidential and what you should or shouldn't share with me. You bring up some great points from that book and those examples, and it's good for all authors to know because not every interview is a friendly interview. I was once hired by Santa Fe Industries, uh, the, the parent company of the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, and they had put a 27-year-old attorney um, in charge of a billion-dollar project in San Diego, and the Los Angeles Times wanted to interview him. So I spent a day training him on all the techniques reporters use. So I was like Mike Wallace to him. I was Mike Wallace for a day. And I used um, the one, two, three kick. That's where you ask three easy questions. And then you ask the tough question. And people got in a rhythm of answering it. You talked about the erroneous. I never did this as a reporter, but I worked for editors who did. Um, yeah, we heard that your sales are down. You're only 50 million in revenue. We're going to go with that. No, that's not it. You know, yeah, they're down, but we're at 92 million. You know, so all these things. So I, I trained him on all these things. And then the, the reporter came and her name was Ruth Ryan. And Ruth was about all of five feet tall when she was wearing her heels. And she had a soft little voice like this. And she was so disarming. And she got to the, what I called the killer question they were gonna ask about him being too young to manage a billion dollar project. And she said, oh, this must be so great for you. You're so young and they put you in charge of a billion dollar project. Um, you know, how do you feel about that? And he looked at her and then he looked over at me and he smiled and then he came <laughs> back with the answer we had prepared yeah. and it was writing down. Um, I know people who, if they went on a national TV program, would rehearse one hour per one minute you were going to be on. So if you were going to be on Oprah for five minutes, you would rehearse for five hours to do that. Many people are not willing to put in the work. Well, you mentioned rehearsal when you talked about 
the trade show. I'm curious, how much rehearsing do you do for, and, and do you typically speak for 30 minutes or for one hour? How long do you speak for and, and what kind of rehearsal practice do you put in? Yeah, I think when when going to the trade shows, um, it depend most of the depend if it's a keynote, right? You might have uh, thirty minutes or forty five minutes. If it's just a workshop session, again, it could be thirty minutes, could be an hour potentially. Um, so I, I usually spend several hours of time in just the planning of what it is I'm going to convey and do kind of a storyboard to flip through what the core takeaways, key messages. And if I had to stream down that presentation, I could get right to the heart of the subject matter. But then thinking about the stories, the examples, the exercises, whatever it might be, to be able to put the content in a context that people can really embrace and, and understand. So uh, just like we talk about these different techniques to uh, have conversations, of which quite frankly, many people probably are applying in their normal personal lives. They just didn't call it elicitation techniques. If you have kids at all, you will use techniques to try to find out what the heck they're doing tonight, right? Or how their weekend was or what they did at school. Uh, so they're not net new but how you connect them and how you apply them becomes really important. And even at the show, post your presentation, as you're trying to understand the needs of your stakeholders or your, your prospective clients, you know, these questions become helpful to understand you know, what problems are you facing and uh, you know, what are some of the challenges that you need to overcome. And as you can think about what solutions you offer, because if we can provide a value proposition of gains that we're creating or pains that we're relieving, there's usually a pretty good fit and it should lead to, to some good opportunities for your business. David, I want to talk about two things. One is has to do with money. Oh, goody, let's talk about money. <laughs> and then two, about the rebound in speaking. So first, the money question. And you mentioned it and you went pretty fast. So I'm going to come back to it. Um, I'm going to tell a little story and then lead in with a question. My little story is an author I was working with wanted to attend a trade show and conference. It was on the Queen Mary. It was a target-rich environment for her, IT executives, and that was her target audience. And they wanted $1,000 to attend. And she said, talk to me about that reporter strategy. So like speaking and getting your entrance fee waived, another thing is if you can write for the legitimate media, I write right now for Forbes.com. I had her write for a, a small uh, newspaper and she was able to get a thousand dollar press credential. I've gotten many press credentials to attend events where I benefited from networking over $1,000. I've also spoken where I've waived my fee. I've even paid the entrance fee to get into the uh, room for the opportunity to speak. But many times that's been waived. Uh, sometimes I've even had travel paid. So. Let's talk about different ways to uh, work this process that you're 
actually not paying to be there, or maybe you're even being paid some travel or something. Have those ever come up for you? All the time. And, and you know what? I don't mind uh, paying even to attend if they said, well, you know, we're a smaller group or it's we're coming out of this virtual environment. So we're not really giving speakers a discount. Uh, and I understand that. So I'll look at the audience list and I'll ask them specifically, what are the, at least the type of companies that are showing up? What are the positions that will be there if you don't want to give me the actual attendee list at this point? And it's well worth it to invest the registration fees to be able to have access to that group and have some time where you're on the stage and makes it really easy for the follow-up. So not only do you meet these people, so your, you're, I guess, you know, cost per lead, if you will, is relatively low, depending on how many people you end up connecting with that are really bona fide uh, potential clients. But the follow-up is really the key. And so if I can say, hey, you know, you may have missed my presentation because there are three other ones going on at the same time. Would you be interested in seeing some of the core slides from that uh, on this topic? And many times I have people going, yeah, I wanted to see that. And I ended up going to a different one. And it's a great way. It's a, it's a warm lead. It's a warm reason to call them. I'm here to help share some knowledge I already talked about, but you didn't get to it. And I'll even sometimes walk through for 10 minutes the highlights of that with somebody. If, again, I think uh, there's a potential down the road of them or somebody they know to be able to provide a business opportunity. So, so the cost to, to attend, the travel cost, the lodging, all those things all work into it. Uh, but if you have the right audience and you have uh, the right visibility and you promote it correctly with some press releases leading up to the event, and a post summary of the presentation, you get a lot of leverage out of one speech at any given trade show, more so than probably most marketing investments that you make. David, I did a 10 year research study. It was $3 billion, $3 million, excuse me, a $3 million 10 year research study on how to attract leads if you're a consultant or a professional. And number one ranking was speaking. And even though there's a cost to attend, as you said, the travel, there might be a cost, and, and we've both done it, where we've paid to be just another member there who got invited to speak to support the organization. When you total all that up for your metrics of a cost per lead, cost per qualified lead, uh, conversion factors, there's just no comparison to any other way. Um, the second best is writing a book. So you're doing that too. So, uh, so you've got both going there. Let's talk about the rebound. So what's your 12 month uh, forecast now where uh, the pandemic is two years and now things are starting to shift a little. We're seeing a lot of that in the United States. Um, are there gonna be more events, more live events? Uh, is there a yes. up demand? Yes. What's your feeling? <laughs> Yes, I think uh, people are eager to get out of their homes. Uh, there was a point in time where we all loved to get home. We couldn't wait to get home. Now we can't wait to get the heck out of our home, right? So, uh, yeah, I think that people miss that social interaction. You know, the, there's nothing that replaces the, the pressing palms and being able to see laughter and to be around other humans. And this environment is great to a point. 
but we're already seeing a lot of shows that had gone completely virtual already are, are starting to launch again. I think attendance will be a little lower this year um, for some of those shows. So if they're used to having 2000 people, they might get 500, maybe 600, you know, because companies still have some travel restrictions on their team members. They're still uh, minimizing how much contact they want to have out there. Uh, but then you have a whole slew of others that are eager to be able to get their products in front of other people to be able to uh, get get on the stage. Uh, so I think the rebound is going to be really strong uh, and it's going to vary in different parts of the world. You know, I, I think there's there's different regions that are more open to a quicker comeback. And then it's all about risk tolerance. Right, what individual risk tolerances are, what their family situations, what their particular health environment looks like. Um, but yes, I do think there'll be more conferences coming alive. The venue becomes important. You know, I know I'm going to one in October in Vegas. I'm going to that. I don't care what the CDC, anyone said, I'm going to that event. You know, so I love Vegas. And if I can get any opportunity to go there, I will be there. Uh, I will take some precautions if I have to. Um, but yeah, I think things are going to continue to pick up and get some degree of normalcy again here. If you're putting on an event, people, Chicago and Vegas, um, surprise, not LA, not Orlando, um, New York, very expensive. I know Mark pulled off a big event in New York, but uh, it's tough. Um, San Francisco, probably I would put that as third. When I interview other people who put on their own workshops, their own speaking opportunities, those cities get mentioned a lot. And yeah, and, and keep in mind international work. events. You know, again, speaking at trade shows is a, a you know, is not just for you know the, the, the this hemisphere here, right? So yeah, to the extent that you as an author or a business owner can get engagements other places, a lot of places, you know, a lot of events are hungry for speakers. And again, if you get your submission in earlier early enough and and you can share, you had other speaking engagements that gives you credibility. Uh, you kind of climb up the ranks of the, from the committee to believe that you're a credible, reliable speaker that's going to add value to that audience. I'm hoping to go to Europe next year. Uh, I'm not real crazy about what's going on in Europe right now as a speaking opportunity. Um, I was. I was visiting one of my authors uh, last night and we were talking about in the former times when they were booking him in India and Kuala Lumpur. And uh, I know one of our authors uh, is in Egypt and then is going to be speaking, um, I think, in Dubai. So there are the international opportunities. Um, I think that rebound is going to come a little after the U.S.-Canada a market, so I agree. Yeah, with that, that. that's that's probably fair. And you mentioned Egypt. I did have a, a chance to speak in Egypt before, and uh, if you ever have the chance, terrific. You know, it was nothing like standing and going into to the Great Pyramid in this four thousand five hundred year old structure, and just uh, amazing. The pictures never do it justice. So you never know. Where again, speaking opportunities will give you overall enhancement of life, right, and give you life experiences. And you meet people at these events that you just don't know uh, where it will lead you to next. So yeah, definitely encourage individuals to get out there. Um, you know, you know, push through any fears you have. Uh, it will allow you to build credibility. It will allow you to improve self-image as well as your your company's image and reputation. 
And ultimately, if your, your key goal is to network, to build relationships and prospective clients, I have still found that to be one of the best ROIs for, for what you put in to, to go to these events um, than almost any other campaign that we have done. And that's the dirty little secret of all of this. It's all about relationships. David, final question. Is there anything you didn't get to share yet that you wanted to share with the audience today? Um, just, I, I think I'm a big believer. I heard this from a, a friend of mine who, um, uh, Cindy Buki is her name. She, she had a great saying that has been emblazed on my head. And that is your attitude drives your actions that determines your results that create your success. I'll say that one more time. Your attitude drives your actions that determines your results that creates your success. I am a big believer that yesterday's mistakes and problems belong to yesterday and you can't do anything about it. So you can wake up, decide to be in a good mood or not. Uh, you're going to have challenges. You're going to have horrible days, you know, but I'm always one that, that believes if you have the right attitude towards something, then the outcomes that you want will be achieved. If you don't have the right attitude, and that's exactly what you're going to get, something that has a negative outcome. So I just leave you with the, the mindset of, you know, believe in yourselves and, and believe in the, the, the work that you're writing and, and the impact that it has on others and go out there and share that knowledge with others. David, what I liked so much about that formula was the two things you can control are your attitude, that mindset, and your actions. And everything else, you don't control. However, if you control those two, you've seen it, I've seen it, great things happen. No so doubt. thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your wisdom. We really appreciate this. We hope we could have you back in the future as a guest. And uh, well, producer Suzanne will take care of that. So <laughs> thanks, everybody. And look forward to seeing you on another episode of Marketing with a Book podcast. Thanks, everybody.